We come to you because there's no one else to whom we can turn. You alone are the author of eternal life and of the words of life. And Father, this morning we're here to study the word of life and to understand what it is you have done in the hearts and lives of your people in times past, knowing that you're the God who does the same today as you did in the past. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Father, we invite you to be present here this morning and to guide our thoughts, focus our, our minds on the Word, and I pray that your Spirit will illumine our hearts. Father, we do pray for these three men who have been held down there in Columbia now for six years. Certainly, you've used them to minister to these people, and uh, we know it's, it's not been a waste, but it's, a, it's been such a stress on the families, wives and children, without their fathers for these years. Father, we just pray that you will facilitate the release of these men, that you will, through the auspices of the president of the country, or by whatever means you would choose, we pray that these three men will be released, and that glory will be brought to your name thereby. We just ask you to bind the evil one and to release them for the, for the sake of your kingdom. Father, we thank you that we can agree concerning these matters. And now we look to you to bless these moments as we share around the word together. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to Joshua chapter 10, I'd like to read again uh, beginning at verse 29. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna, and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel. And he struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor in it. Thus he did to its king, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish. And they camped by it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua defeated him and his people until he had left him no survivor. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon. And they camped by it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he utterly destroyed that day every person who was in it, according to all that he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and fought against it. And they captured it and struck it and its king and all its cities and all the persons who were in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor according to all that he had done to Eglon, and he utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to Debir, and they fought against it, and he captured it and its king and all, all of its cities, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed every person who was in them. He left no survivor, just as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Debir and its king, as he also had done to Libna and its king. This passage of scripture describes the methodical destruction of the Canaanite city-states throughout southern Canaan. As you think of this area, the area we're talking about where these attacks are being made and where these conquests are being carried out, 
is an area smaller than Shasta County. And yet it is a region that has been inhabited by these Canaanites for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They're deeply rooted in the land. Now in spite of the fact that the Canaanite armies had largely been wiped out as they had fought with, with Joshua at Gibeon and had been chased down the Beth Horon Ridge and then down through the Shephelah all the way down to Makeda. In spite of that fact, and in spite of the fact that Joshua now had a battle-hardened army. I mean, he's got an army of veterans. They've seen many battles now, and, and so they know something about what warfare is about. And yet, in all of this, and, and to me this is a really significant point, as we read there at the uh, beginning of verse 30, and the Lord gave it, and the beginning of verse 32, and the Lord gave Lachish, no matter how much of the enemy had been destroyed, no matter how prepared Israel was, the victory was still the Lord's. It was the Lord who gave them victory over these pagan cities. All we have to do is go back and look at the suddenness by which great victory at Jericho was turned into great tragedy at Ai to, to understand how quickly uh, everything would be turned around. Everything would be looking really rosy and all of a sudden, bang, you know, the whole bottom drops out. The point is, no matter what resources Israel had in the flesh, the true source of their victory, the true source of their power, was God alone. In these latter verses of this passage, beginning at verse 34 and going through verse 39, we have kind of a matter-of-fact recounting there of the destruction of the remaining cities of the Amorite Confederation. You remember five cities had joined forces to attack Gibeon because Gibeon had made an alliance with Joshua. And to the king of Jerusalem, this was absolute heresy. And, and so he wanted to convince the Gibeonites to either rejoin the Canaanite cause or, or to be destroyed. And so that uh, alliance had been formed. So after chasing the Amorite confederation through Joshua's longest day, there was this sequential capture of the cities that had been part of the alliance of this coalition of forces. And in, in this passage, in uh, verse 34, we, we discover that they now march against a city named Eglon. Eglon was located about eight miles west of Lachish. The siege of the city and its collapse probably didn't take very long. As we read these passages, this, this passage of scripture, we get the feeling that these cities fall fairly quickly. And again, let me remind you, in case you weren't here last week, that's not a normal situation. In ancient times, cities laid under siege usually were able to resist siege for fairly long periods of time, depending on the size of the attacking army, the size of the defending army, and whether there's anybody inside the city who's willing to become a fifth column person, you know, and trade the city for their lives. And, and people will do that. You find them through history where cities fall simply because somebody inside the city decides to go down at night and open the gate and let the enemy in. This, this happened. But that does not seem to happen at any of these junctures because none of these people are too interested in dying so quickly. And so the, the cities are buttoned up and yet the cities fall. They just seem to fall within a day or two of the siege. Again, this is God's doing. He has, he has so debilitated the enemy that they're not able to resist. Joshua's forces. We're, we're told that the city of Makeda was totally destroyed. The city of Eglat, uh, Lachish was totally destroyed. 
and Libna, and now Eglon. These cities are all in what is known as the Shephelah. It's, it's a region between the hill country and the coastal plain. It's a region of low-lying rolling hills with valleys in between. It's a very nice area, actually, in Palestine. And so these are the cities that dominate that region. And now, one by one, they have fallen. And, and as we go on into verse 38 and 39, well, 36, he, he goes from Eglon to Hebron. Now, if you don't have a knowledge of the geography of the area, this doesn't really mean much to you. But if you've been there, you know what Joshua is facing. Because Eglon is down on the edge of the coastal plain. Hebron is on the top of the ridge route, the central ridge, Judean ridge. Hebron is 25 miles away by road, but it's 2,500 vertical feet higher than Eglon. And so he has to lead his army now up into the hills to the 2,500 foot, uh, well actually it's 3,000 foot elevation there at Hebron. Hebron is the highest city in the Judean hills, the southern part of Canaan, it's the highest city. As you pass from Jerusalem southward along the ridge, it climbs a little to go to Hebron. Jerusalem's at about 2,600 feet. You climb a few hundred feet to get to Hebron, which is at uh, 3,000 feet. And after you pass Hebron, it, the ridge begins to taper off and eventually you drop out into the Negev, the sort of plateau area of the south part of the land. Hebron was a key fortification. Hebron throughout its history has been a flashpoint in this land, even as you know it today. When, when we've, we've been in Israel several times and every time we've been to Hebron, you always feel a little uneasy in Hebron because there's a lot of military presence there. And they've had a lot of trouble in Hebron and in the region around there. And even in the day we're talking about, here was this fortified city, the last major fortification before you passed south out of the Judean highlands. And so the army climbs the ridge to, to make this siege and this attack of the city of Hebron. <coughs> and along with it, an outpost by the name of Debir, which was about eight miles further south, slightly lower in elevation. With the fall of Hebron and the fall of Debir, Israel has locked up that portion of the land. And we're, we're told that from there they will strike southward. Israel has come to control this region of Canaan through the power and the strength of the Lord against fortified cities armed and, and defended by people who were militaristic, by people who were warlike, by people who were Iron Age people. The only glitch that was faced along the way was, of course, the glitch at Gibeon. And the Gibeon glitch, of course, was a serious one. But now God's commands have been fo followed to the letter, it appears. So let's read the last few verses here in the chapter, beginning at verse 40 of chapter 10. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev, the lowland and the slopes, and all their kings. And he left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. And he struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. 
So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Well, this passage tells us that after capturing Hebron and Tabir, the army continued south out into the Negev until they had reached Kadesh Barnea. Now, that should ring a bell or two because Kadesh Barnea was where they were 40 years before when God said, go into the land. And Moses sent spies in and 10 spies came out and says, we can't take the land. There are giants in this land and big walled cities. We can't do this. And now they're back at Kadesh Barnea, only they've conquered it in reverse. Instead of from Kadesh Barnea driving in, they've now driven south to Kadesh Barnea, but they've captured the land in between. It's about 70 miles from Hebron down to Kadesh Barnea. And then uh, the scripture tells us that they captured clear over to Gaza. Now Gaza, of course, is well known to us today because Gaza is in the news all the time. It's been a problem in Palestine for <laughs> 2,000 years or more, this place called Gaza. Gaza is located about 36 miles west of Hebron. Now, does this passage mean that Joshua captured the city of Gaza? Or does it mean he simply captured the territory up to the border of Gaza? The reason I ask that question is because if you go back into the second chapter of Deuteronomy, you discover that Gaza was controlled by the Philistines. And that whole region down there was called Philistia. And we also know from late in Joshua and into the book of Judges that Gaza was in the hands of the Philistines. Because that's where Samson uh, did some of his things, you know. And he had contact with the Philistines at Gaza. So it would seem to be true as we study this that if Joshua did take Gaza, he didn't obliterate all of the people of Philistia. If he did take Gaza, he may have killed the population at the time, at the moment, but they came back in later. Another group of Philistines did. Whatever was the case, and we're going to see this as a problem also with Hebron and Jerusalem, because we'll see later they have to be uh, reconquered at a later time, which indicates that the first conquest was incomplete. It was not a total wipeout of all of the neighboring Canaanites. There were pockets that were able to resist and come back and recapture some of the cities. And of course, Jerusalem would still be there as a Jebusite city for David to capture. And thus it would become the city of David. And Hebron would have to be recaptured later on again too. So that may have been the case as far as Gaza is concerned. An initial capture of the city, but not a proper occupation of the city. And so the Philistines reoccupied it later on. The word Goshen here, which is mentioned in this passage, should in no way be interpreted as the Egyptian Goshen. It has nothing to do with Egypt. There was a small town in the Judean hills known as Goshen. And it is simply referring to that and the environments around it. it you'll notice it says from Goshen to Gibeon, and Gibeon was just north of Jerusalem, and Goshen was just south of Jerusalem. So it, it was that area that is being referred to here. There are some people who interpret scripture as if a particular term has to always refer to the same thing throughout scripture, such as Goshen. No, I always was interested as a kid, the fact that not too far from my hometown was there, there was a town called Goshen. I said, well, land of Goshen, you know, here it is right here. Didn't know it was so close. Some of these names are frequently used over and over again in different places, and they need to be understood within the context. Again, in this passage, 
it is plainly stated and it's plainly stated simply for the fact that we as people have forgetters that forget twice as fast it seems as we have rememberers to remember and so the Lord is again saying the victory is mine I have brought the victory I have given you the victory <coughs> Israel was not to forget they were an ex-slave people they were a nomadic people they were not a militaristic people they were not a people of tradition of warfare and uh, conquest and therefore the victories they have achieved have been brought about by divine intervention and this is a very very important concept for us to always keep in mind the conquest was clearly a power encounter between Yahweh and the numerous Canaanite gods it was definitely that after several weeks possibly even months of campaigning Israel was tired you know even in victory you get tired and and so they decided to go back to Gilgal for some well-deserved R&R and if you look at the map you'll discover that those soldiers have marched between two and three hundred miles as they've gone from Gilgal to Gibeon and from Gibeon to to Aelon, from Aelon to Ezekiah, Ezekiah all the way down to Eglon, then all the way back up to Hebron, and all the way down to Kadesh Barnea, and all the way back across to Gaza, and now all the way back to Gilgal. I mean, we're talking about a bit of marching here. And so these guys are ready to go home. They haven't seen their wives, their, their sisters, their brothers, their, their aunts, their mothers, their fathers, their children in, in many, many weeks. And so they're ready to go home. They fought dozens of battles. They've captured uh, probably dozens of cities, counting the villages that were related. Whenever it says there, for example, Debir and its cities, what it means is Debir with the surrounding villages that were uh, interrelated economically with the central city of Debir. Normally, these, uh, the, the land of Canaan was divided into city-states. So Jerusalem would be the capital of the city-state of Jerusalem. And the hinterland out around belonged to Jerusalem, and it was pocked with villages. And those villages were related economically and politically to the central city. And so it was. These were city-states, very common thing in the ancient world. Ancient Egyptian, Egypt was a, a land of city-states for hundreds of years before it was finally merged into a single state. Mesopotamia was made up for a very long period of time by city-states, of various city-states that were only occasionally linked together into a single kingdom or a single empire. One of the interesting factors of history that you discover is that history swings like a pendulum. And you have a period of time when there's all these little petty states and then somebody comes along and merges them all together into a big empire. And then this empire collapses back into a bunch of little petty states, you know. And, and they've worked that way for a while. And then somebody comes along and remerges them and now you have another empire again. I mean, you look at the history of India, the history of China, you see this constant swing of the pendulum back and forth. And it was the same, same was true here in Canaan. Yes, every once in a while the Egyptians would come in and conquer all of Canaan. The Hittites would come down and conquer all of Canaan. And yet the city-states remained. And the local villager was large, largely unaffected by it all. He still had to go out and plow the field and chase the sheep around regardless of who the king was or who the empire was at the time. Because most emperors knew that to destroy the local population, as Israel was doing here, was, was, was to, to, to ruin the economic basis for capturing the whole place. Now Israel, of course, was displacing the enemy. 
they were going to occupy and they were going to do what the Canaanites had been doing. But for a conquering power like the Hittites or the Egyptians, you want to keep everything functioning so you get lots of tribute. So you don't want to kill off the local folks. And so uh, you, you keep this going. So anyway, uh, can you just think of the troops arriving back in Gilgal? Cheers for the guys coming back. You know, ticker tape parade if they had any ticker tape. And the guys come back in and they filter out through the camp and they go to their homes. Can you imagine the late hours? Sitting around the campfire at night talking about the victories and the battles and what I did, you know. Well, you know, I did this and I did that and I was over the wall here and whatever, you know. Telling the stories to their families of the great victories that God had given to Israel over the Canaanites of southern Canaan. And of course they had proof. They had all these goodies they brought with them. The loot they had gotten along the way. They brought it with them. And, and to share and to delight their parents and their children and their wives and whoever else with the loot that they brought home, which God allowed. Exciting time. Joyful time. It was the product of obedience. Israel trusted, Israel obeyed, and God gave them spectacular victories. The enemy could not stand before them because God had said to Joshua, no one will stand before you the remaining days of your life. And so it would be for all of Israel. Now, I think it's very important for us to understand that the enemy was not just people who looked different from Israel, people who spoke a different language, who dressed a little differently, just plain Canaanites. The enemy was far larger than the Canaanite people. The enemy included their vile religion. The enemy included their decadent social systems. The enemy was the demonic forces behind all of that. Because the Canaanite lifestyle and religion was driven by demons. Demons who had captured their faith and captured their devotion and their commitment. Demons who empowered their gods and, and drove their institutions and gave them the desire to do the vile things that were part of Canaanite worship and Canaanite society. Even later on, as, as vile as the Romans were, the Romans were disgusted at what Canaanites would do. And when I say Canaanites, I'm referring specifically to the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians who established themselves at Carthage in North Africa were closely related to the Canaanites, the ancient Canaanites, and practiced the same religion and the same kind of uh, civilization. And, and, and even to the Romans, the idea of, of sacrificing hundreds of babies because you can feel that somehow the God is going to look upon you, smile upon you, and give you victory, uh, even caused the Romans to cringe. The victory could come only from God because the evil spirits behind the Canaanite civilization were far too strong for flesh and blood to deal with. Israel could have fought from then to this very day and not defeated the Canaanites without God's power. As I was thinking about this this morning, this passage of Scripture came to my mind. It's not on your outline, but let me just read to it. Your, uh, read it from Acts chapter 19. In our sophisticated society, of course, we, we have a tendency to gloss over everything and not really think much of the spirit realm. But Paul is here at Ephesus. Ephesus was a vile city. Uh, Ephesus was just about Atlantic City, Las Vegas, San Francisco, anything you want to think of all rolled up into one. Kind of the pleasure capital of the world in those days. And, and Paul is here, and, and uh, beginning at verse 11, we read, And Paul was performing extraordinary miracles by 
God was performing <laughs> extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. By the way, the book of Acts is a history book. It's not a theology book. It is not saying that you should go around blessing handkerchiefs and sending them out to people. No, no, no. It's not saying that at all. It is just simply stating a fact that happened one time that we know of in Scripture, only one time. And th this isn't, you know, years ago, I, I remember there was somebody on the radio who said, you send him some money and he'll send you a blessed handkerchief. And I thought, sure thing. <laughs> Verse 13, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now there's first-hand knowledge. The seven sons of one Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. I wonder what the chief priest thought of his kids. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, Now I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul. But who in the dickens are you guys? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued all of them, overpowered them. Now there's seven of them. Overpowered them and the name, uh, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000 days' wages, so that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. You see, this is the reason for a power encounter. The reason for a power encounter is not to say, my God is bigger than your God. You know, the reason for a power encounter is so that the word of the Lord will grow mightily and prevail. That's the reason. These men were trying to imitate what they saw. They were like Simon Magnus who, who, who said to Paul, or was it Peter? Peter, I guess it was. I, I want to buy the Holy Spirit from you so I can put my hands on people, you know, and, and, and they'll receive the Holy Spirit. The spirit was very real. Spirit in that one man was so strong that that one man was able to beat seven guys up, strip them naked, and chase them out of the house. Now that's humiliating for the seven, I would imagine. But you see, they knew who Paul was. They know these guys. Because these guys were, were just trying to manipulate the system. They, had, they weren't working in the, under the authority and the power and the direction of the Spirit of God. That's where the power is. It's in the Spirit of God. Now, you and I may not be fighting to conquer human armies or to capture earthly cities, but we are just as really locked in combat with, spiritual, with the spiritual forces of darkness, which have the power to destroy our culture and our nation. I think there are people today who feel that somehow because the United States has evolved to this higher level that we will be exempt from history. But history is loud and history is clear. The mighty fall time and time and time again. It is inevitable the mighty fall. No empire has ever avoided collapse and destruction. Never throughout history. Faith and obedience in Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. It is by that 
that we avail ourselves of what it takes to be good sol soldiers of Jesus Christ. Because soldiers we are, one way or the other. And, and it is through the power of prayer and the power, power of God's Word that we war against the Prince of Darkness, just as really today. This might seem a little trite to you, but Lois reminded me this morning on our way to church that we needed to pray that, that God's hand will even protect something as simple as this piece of machinery here from the enemy's power. You know, he's able to garble up machinery and make it so we've had it happen in the past, you know. Lesson was lost because the machine garbled it up somehow. And I, I realize machinery can malfunction, but there, there was no reason for the machinery to malfunction. It had not been malfunctioning. It is God who gives us the victory, and He chooses to use His people. He chooses to use His people as vehicles of conquest, of vehicles of victory. He doesn't have to. God can win mighty victories without any one of us, but He chooses to use us. And so we are locked in a life and death struggle, just as really as was Joshua. The difference is the scale of the battle. Joshua was in the process of conquering a little bitty, tiny little country over there called Canaan. You could put Canaan into San Bernardino County two and a half times. Two Shasta counties and you've got the whole land of Israel. That's why when you visit there, you're surprised. You think, what? You mean I can land in Tel Aviv, visit Jerusalem, go all the way to Bethlehem all in the same day? <laughs> oh yeah, and then some more besides that. It's a very, very small land. But for you and for me, we are part of the body of Christ, the church, and the battleground is this planet, the whole world. It's exciting to be a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance because there are uh, some 1,100 missionaries who are frontline troops out there in the foreign lands, over 50-some countries, preaching the gospel and warring on behalf of the gospel. And we are here in Gilgal, as it were. And the people in Gilgal are absolutely essential to the frontline troops because it's from Gilgal that the resources are drawn. And it's in Gilgal the prayers are prayed that brings the victories on the front line. And of course, we here in Gilgal have our local battles to fight too. I mean, the enemy is alive and well here in Reading as he is in Ivory Coast or Indonesia. And so we too need to be part of God's conquest on behalf of our family, our friends, our coworkers, our acquaintances, because our nation is seeking deeper and deeper, deeper into Canaanite darkness. There was an Augustinian monk that you are familiar with. His name was Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther was only nine years old when Columbus discovered America. He was born at a time when the Renaissance was just beginning to, to develop in Germany. It had been going on in uh, Italy for a little while. And although there was a spiritual component to the Renaissance, the Renaissance was largely a humanistic endeavor. It was, it was an attempt to show how great humans are. So pagan superstitions and vile lifestyles, which characterized many during the Middle Ages, continued on into the Renaissance. In fact, in some cases were even enhanced. And this in the midst of Christian Europe. Well, Martin Luther went through a mighty conversion to Jesus Christ and as a result of that, he was given spiritual eyes to see into the spiritual realm. And, and through that spiritual eyesight, he was divinely inspired, I believe, to write one of the profoundest hymns of the church. You're all familiar with it. It's called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And Luther wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark, a fortress never failing. Our helper, he amid 
the flood of moral ills prevailing. Do you feel like that sometimes? Moral ills are overwhelming us. Well, we think, oh, back in Luther's day, life was simple, pretty easy. He was a monk. How could he have all these mortal ills? For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are itty-bitty. No, great. And armed with cruel hate, we have to always remember, Satan is not a kindly person. He's absolutely bent on destroying God's people. And on earth there is not his equal. We can't stand nose to nose to Satan and duke it out with him. We'll be pulverized into oblivion. Luther understood that the flood of troubles that we face from day to day and week to week and year to year come from the craft and power of the evil one. And that on earth there's no one who can fight him in the flesh. There's no equal to him. Thank you, Norma. Luther goes on in his song to emphasize that we do not have the ability to overcome him. But then he underscores the fact that the ultimate victory is ours through the one who can duke it out with him and smash him, and that is Jesus Christ. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. The seven sons of Siva found that out. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just does ask who that may be, Jesus Christ. It is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Luther goes on to say that even though we live in a world filled with devils, some people like to think back in, in Martin Luther's day as if it were kind of an ongoing Halloween. There are just as many devils in the world today as there were in Luther's day. They have not diminished in numbers. And, and even though the world is filled with the seeming presence of the Prince of Darkness, we should not tremble because of that, because their doom is sure. And by what agencies will this victory come? By what agency will the church have ultimate victory over the Prince of Darkness? And he spells it out. It's by the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the spiritual gifts given to the church. By these tools, the church will win. The ultimate victory, however, will come with temporal loss, and this is the part we sometimes don't like, because he says, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth, however, abides still because his kingdom is forever. There are wounded and there are dead in the process of building this kingdom. There are martyrs. There have been millions of martyrs through the past 2,000 years, and they're still falling all over the world. This body they may kill, but it's only for the moment. Hopefully you and I will never have to kill anybody, as Joshua and Israel did, but that does not make the spiritual warfare any less real. Let me end today with one verse from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. That doesn't mean we won't be wounded necessarily, nor does it mean we won't die necessarily, because the protection is in our spirits as to whom we are in Jesus Christ. And once we're out of this life and the next, we'll wonder why we ever held on to it so dearly.
because there we will see the joy and the glory of everlasting presence in God and the victory without even scent of defeat. Well, next Sunday we'll move into the, third, to the 11th chapter of Joshua.